0: Welcome to the Storytellers Live Podcast, where everyday people share real and personal stories of encounters with God. I'm Robin, and I'm here with Lindy and Katie, and today we have a story for you by Laura Quick, who actually reached out to us. She is editor of a magazine that's actually based out of Birmingham called Good Grit and it is a storytelling magazine and so when they reached out to us it was a natural fit Mm -hmm. for she actually calls herself I think chief executive storyteller like that's her job and so it's your job too so when she reached out to us it was just a perfect fit and as we sat and we talked through her story I just want to lay it out to you before we get started which is she shares a little bit about her childhood and just the difficulty she walked through and then she fast forwards a good bit to when She actually Mm -hmm. met Jesus in her life today. And so. You'll hear that she skips through that, and then she goes to a part of hiring employees. And at this time, she's met Jesus, and she faces this real challenge mm-hmm. with her employees, and life gets a little difficult. And she ends up really sharing where God met her, where He continues mm-hmm. to meet her, you know, that she is not going to let the enemy come against her. I just wanted to give you kind of the right. framework of the story,
1: right? Well, the theme of her story really is letting go of your shame, and I think that's something that many, especially women, mm-hmm. struggle with a little bit. I know that I do some, and and really the message of her story is to lay your shame at the foot of the cross. And it's it's a message all of us need to hear.
0: And a quick warning. I know that lots of times little ears listen, my <laughs> daughter included. We do want to let you know that there is a one word coming in this story that we do not normally have in our stories, but it was actually a great part of her story. <laughs> right. And we wanted to keep it in for sure. Um, but just know that coming up, there is one little word that you may want to listen for. And here's Laura's story. 2020 is behind us, and we're in the new year. Yippee! And if you have been a listener of Storytellers Live for a while, or if you're brand new, you know that we have been partnering with Neverthirst for quite some time. And one of our highlights of 2020 was actually partnering with you and with Neverthirst to build a well in Cambodia. And Neverthirst is a Birmingham-based ministry that brings clean water and access to Jesus and the gospel to communities in Asia and Africa. So we want to thank you for partnering with us to build the well in Cambodia. And if you haven't partnered with Never Thirst Yet, we invite you to. You can change the stories of women in need around the world. And one mother, this is so cool, one mother in the DR Congo said, since we received a water filter for our home, my children can now attend school. And I haven't heard them complaining as they used to. As a mother, I'm grateful and I thank Neverthirst for their generous support to my family because I now have peace. So we're inviting you to give the gift of peace to more women and learn how you can partner with Neverthirst at Neverthirstwater.org today.
2: Well, I'm so honored to be here. This is, I always like to find a like-minded group of people who love storytelling because when someone asks me what I do for a living, I always just say, I'm a storyteller. So I think I'll just set the stage. I feel like the common theme and the thread that'll run through this whole story will be one of a relationship with shame and not to be confused with my husband, whose name is Shane. And sometimes people do confuse those. I do have a great relationship with him and a more turbulent relationship with shame I grew up in Savannah, Georgia, actually a a really tiny town right outside of Savannah called Guyton. Nobody knows where that is, so I always just say Savannah. I grew up with my grandparents who lived just down the road, Uh, they had a nice farm, learned a lot about tractors and golf carts and farming and fishing and cussing and just things you shouldn't learn, but my granddad was colorful. And my dad, who worked a ton, he always seemed to have two or three jobs. He loved saving money. I think that was always like how to plant some seeds for y'all and you're going to have a different life than me. And thankfully, I think we all do. Um, I'm one of – this is always hard. I have three brothers and one sister that I have a very close relationship with. But I also have two other siblings that I don't know very well that were from my mother but my dad and mom had me and my mom left just 18 months after I was born. And so I lived mostly for the first couple of years of my life with my grandparents as my dad worked. And then my dad remarried and my first introduction into I'm going to I'm going to call it religion because we definitely can't call it relationship was very religion was weaponized in our house. And I think that was I really don't think that that was on purpose. I think my parents were doing the best that they could, and they were probably doing what they had been taught. But that had a way of just driving you away from being curious even. It it didn't even breed an environment of curiosity to, like, "Mm, I want want to know more about this God. I was kind of like, you sound scary. I'm good to go. I remember going to a church service when I was probably only like seven, and somebody telling me in my little group, like, you know, if you say a cuss word and then you get in a car accident and you die, you're going to hell. And I was like, what? Oh, my God. Okay. So I just, that was kind of like a, a really, the, a theme that ran through. But then as we got older, I would definitely say that God and the idea of God was weaponized more so than it was ever. Grace was not a word used in our house. And so that that created an environment where There were some things that happened early on in my life that I thought were my fault, and they breeded a whole lot of carrying shame. And, you know, it started from, I had a a pretty physically abusive dad, and it was, that was really hard. And then my mom kind of walked back into the picture when I was, I think I was probably nine or 10. Interestingly enough, she moved to Alabama for a little while and moved home, and when she came home, she had gone through another divorce. This was probably her third divorce, and she lived with her brother. I would go and visit her, and she was on drugs and had two other children. She had a difficult time taking care of and worked at a restaurant and would leave me, and my uncle actually started sexually abusing me, and so— To escape my home life, I would go and visit my mother, only to walk into some sexual abuse. So leave physical abuse, walk into sexual abuse. And that was kind of a pattern. That lasted only for maybe a little over a year, but it felt like an eternity, and I had so much shame. I mean, I would just think, I'm supposed to tell somebody this, but then if I tell somebody this, I'll be in trouble, and then I'll probably get a whipping Or, you know, whatever the case may be. And my relationship with my family just grew more turbulent as the years went on. I had three little brothers. And again, I still have a relationship with my my dad and my stepmom. And I think they really were doing the best that they could. But they spent a whole lot of time trying to control a lot of things that they, because they were just scared and didn't know what to do. Because maybe they'd never seen the right way or a better way. And so there was a lot of, as the oldest in our house, I did a whole lot of protecting, and that protecting normally got me in trouble. My middle little brother was on the spectrum, and there would just be a lot of things that I saw that I thought it was my job to save them, and when I couldn't save them, it just perpetuated this story of shame. Like, you should be ashamed that you can't step in and do better. And all the other dirty things that I felt like were all over me and eventually someone would find those out and I would be rejected, not accepted, whatever the case may be. So when I was in high school, kind of the straw that broke the camel's back was I I went to school and my little brother, the oldest of my little brothers, was just one year behind me. So I think he was a freshman and I was a sophomore and my dad had put his hands on him and inappropriately just way too much. You know, we're, I don't think, I, I haven't even spanked my son since he was probably like six, right? Like eventually you learn it doesn't actually work. And so it becomes abuse. You're like, okay, well, time out or give me that technology that you think you need. And, but for whatever reason, that one time just hit me the wrong way. And he was lamenting and he had a great dad. Um, and so I called his dad from school and I said, Hey, I think you should know that Tony's being abused, and and his dad took action immediately and removed him from the house. And I went home that day, and there was kind of a – we always sat at the formal dining room table to do our homework. And when my stepmother got home, she sat there, and she was just really very upset. She couldn't believe that Tony's dad had found out about this. How dare someone who told him – who's just probing and probing. This went on for what felt like an attorney. It was probably 10 minutes because I was a kid, you know. And then she made us both swear on the Bible. That was like the course of action. Bring out the Bible and swear on the Bible that you don't know how he found out. And I admitted eventually, I don't remember how it all came out, but I admitted and my dad just kind of unleashed that night, harder than he had ever done before. And the same night they took us to... A PTA meeting but I could I had to change my clothes because that's how bad it was. it was awful and I remember going to school the next day and one of my my teachers I had a little boyfriend at the time and my best friend all were like hey we're gonna call someone so I was removed from my house when I was 15 years old as a sophomore in high school probably the most embarrassing thing you can endure as a high school student is to have child protective services come get you and then This big ordeal. It was a small, you know, town. There's probably, you know, a couple, maybe a hundred, couple hundred kids in my class. It was really, again, more shame. Oh, this, this new thing that is going to make you be the girl that stands out. And I left home, and I had my own apartment when I was a senior in high school. Worked, and all my teachers knew what was up, and so they probably let me slide by with the least appropriate education that you can get and actually graduate high school and I had plans to go to school and and I'm going to fast forward through this part I'm just going to say that in the course of the next 10 years there was so from 17 to almost 30 there were failed there was a baby that obviously I was not planning for my going into my junior year of college there was divorce my own. There were horrible relationships. There were a lot of failing as a parent, a lot of muddying through not knowing how to be a mom, but being a mom. But there was this perpetual theme that I wouldn't have even been able to articulate even as an adult. There was lying to get jobs that I wasn't qualified for just so I could take care of my son. And I mean, I would always show up and do the job, but to get there was like sketchy, to say the least. And those thirteen years, I guess, or you know, maybe give or less, or give or take, there were just so many moments that I had no idea that I was walking around with this heaviness, this burden, this shame, and I I didn't I wouldn't learn that until I moved to Alabama. So I'm going to take you to the place where I was in my corporate career and I had – who knows how I got the jobs I got. But I landed as an international sales marketing director for a company based out of St. Louis. I was flying all over the country. I was managing salespeople in multiple countries. It was amazing. It was so fun, exhilarating. I was really good at it. I loved the guy that I worked for. He was pouring a lot into me. And I actually had had – talk about just God being good when you can look back in retrospect – had several really strong, incredible men who led me in roles and gave me chances and then just were really good men. They were not – they never tried to leverage their position. They never tried to make me feel less than. They always promoted me and built me up and really kind of told me who I was, maybe even sometimes when I didn't know. And looking back at that, it's such a gift because that was really not something I'd had – Never really had a man who would stand up in my life, aside from my grandfather, who liked to cuss and was very colorful, as I mentioned before, that would do that. And so it was just a gift when I look back. Landed in this position to work for multiple men in in the same industry, and they were all incredible. Three really, really successful, multimillionaire men who invested in me, believed in me, and gave me positions I didn't deserve who had kind of shown me, some of them, what it was like to be just a good boss, but two of them, what it was like to be a good husband, what it was like to be a good father. And I think, I don't think I could have articulated that at the time. But in this season, I knew I did not want to be away from Clay anymore. Clay is my son, who is now 17, which is insane, and is a senior in high school. Can I even believe I just said that out loud? I looked around one day and thought, I can't do this anymore. I'm missing his life. When I was younger, I think it was easier to just say, like, oh, I'm doing this for you, the same way my dad would say, oh, I'm working all these jobs, so I'm doing this for you. And I thought, like, what does that even mean? You know, eventually I'm just going to blink and he'll be gone. And I knew I wanted to just slow the pace and invest a little more in him. And had I had this bleeding franchise in Birmingham, Alabama. I couldn't figure out how to fix it. And so I traveled to Birmingham and I just kind of fell in love. Savannah was where I was living at the time and it was beautiful. I love Savannah. There's 300,000 people there. I knew all of them, I felt like. And I was like, well, I don't know how I'm ever really going to, like, what business would I start here? I have no idea. But to come to Birmingham, I could be a consultant. There were lots of people in my same industry, had tons of relationships. It was a cool hub to fly in and out of. And so I said, I'm going to start my first company in Mountain Brook, Alabama because. Obviously, it's cool, Mountain Brook. Mm -hmm. I did a little research, did some backstory. I found out there were – the one thing that even without Jesus, I was always very passionate about giving back. I really lived a life of like pay it forward. You get what you give. And those are principles. I've always lived a life of like deep gratitude too, which I think, honestly, where did that come from? I mean, that's only the goodness of God. I think maybe sometimes you're just born with a different disposition. And mine was always just kind of like, hey, it could be worse. (laughs) And so I'm just going to be thankful for what I have. So I get to Birmingham, move into my tiny 250-square-foot office in Mountain Brook, the office park there. And I had done some research and found out that Mountain Brook was really known for their philanthropy. I mean, they had ranked in the top 5 to 10 in the country for the most philanthropic cities. And yes, they are classified as their own city, even though they're very much Birmingham. Um, but I, I was just intrigued by that, and I knew I wanted to start a business. So I started as a consultant. And that was going really well. wanted to elaborate. I was trying to figure out what my niche was going to be. And one day, I received a New York Times. It was delivered to the previous tenant. And in that New York Times, there was an article about the South. Remember, it really was kind of about the food movement in the South. And I don't know what it was, but it just ticked me off. I was like what in the world are people in New York doing telling this story? Like, they're not here. They don't see this. And I just felt like I had walked into Birmingham. And in 2012, I mean, Birmingham was booming. Like, downtown was starting to explode. It was coming alive again. People were investing in old buildings. Second and third were just like, second was really starting to pop. First was kind of already on its way. And I thought, like, I have a front row seat of this. I was introduced to Frank Stitt's restaurants. I was just like, yes where am I this is amazing and Savannah invented hospitality and that's what they they you come out of the womb there and you're like would you like a sweet tea with that like it's just what you do and so I called a friend who had a magazine and said hey I think I'm going to start a magazine he was like that's great and Birmingham yeah they need a magazine and I was like no I mean I'm going to do it from Birmingham but I think I'd like to be regional I'd really like to come alongside and carve out my own space in the southern market he was like what yeah i know that sounds crazy but i really think there's just something to this there's southern living it's this down to earth like what kind of flour do i need to use to make this cake that my grandma gave me and uh there's garden and gun which is like forty thousand dollar rolexes that seven people that i've ever met my entire life maybe own and then they're you know eighty thousand dollar shotguns which obviously we all have one or two of those And so there really wasn't a a lane for storytelling, for Southern storytelling, authentic Southern storytelling. And really, interestingly enough, now I realize that's just the inspiration and kind of hope lane that I really wanted to step into. Now, keep in mind, at this time, I did not know God. No, God was certainly chasing me down. He had left the 99. He was coming after the one. Okay. It was hardcore pursuit from God. I did not know that. These things, again, you only get to know in retrospect. You can only look back and be like, oh, okay, I see what you were doing there. And so one day Clay and I were going for a hike and we get on the interstate and I'm mad because we're late. We're meeting some friends just outside of Atlanta in Lithia Springs and we get on the interstate. And I had a convertible at the time, top was down, wind wind blowing, music on, we're dancing. I've already yelled at him about how mad I am that we're gonna miss everybody and we're gonna have to hike on our own, but whatever. And we get behind this guy going really fast, and I thought, okay, thank God, we're gonna be behind this going really fast, and it's gonna be great. Maybe we'll get there on time. Probably not. And he finally he pulls off just before probably a long while before we were there. And I was like, okay, good. I need gas. Clay goes in and gets donuts, which is obviously what you do before you go on a hike. You eat sugar. And this guy walks over, and he says, hey, uh, where are you from? And I was like, I mean, I'm originally from Savannah, but I live in Birmingham now. And he was like, cool. What do you do? And he had to be just curious because of how psychotic we had to look in the back. of, like, He had to be staring back there like, this girl should be arrested for driving like this with her child in the car because we were dancing and being so goofy, which was a normal occurrence for Clay and I. And I, I said, I do marketing because, like, at this time I was, like, going to start a magazine and all these things. And I was already in the – and he was like, cool. And I was like, what are you doing? He's like, yeah, marketing. And I was like, cool. What kind? so the story progresses and eventually he gives me the worst business card I've ever seen in creation like I've never seen a worse business card and I thought to myself this guy does not do marketing like that is the cutest thing that he's ever said but for sure not what he does and that guy was is now my husband and (laughs) um and I remember we had a phone call because he we had we had established that he had a client that needed something that I had a client that and that's how we connected and I remember on our first phone call he said well, where do you go to church? Which I believe is like one of the first three questions people ask you in Alabama specifically. It's like, are you married? What do you do? Do you have any kids? Where do you go to church? And I was like, I don't really go to church. I don't know if I really believe in the Bible. <laughs> and I was like, what What about you? And he was like, I kind of do church for a living. And I was like, cool. I guess we're probably never going to talk again. So this has been fun. And that was the beginning of – that was definitely one of the catalysts that changed my relationship with Shane. But that isn't the main one. But I will say that once Shane and I, we were friends, and I was not a believer and he was a believer, there were two things that happened. One was we were sitting at a booth once, and I told him some things that I just thought, if I tell this guy this – he'll never want to know me again because of the type of work he does and like the life he lives and what he believes. And I said, I, well, I tell him all the things. I told him just everything horrific you can think that I would probably tell him for my whole life. And he just said, hey, God doesn't want you walking around with shame. Shame is like shit on your shoes. And God doesn't want you walking around with shoes like that. He wants you to have clean shoes. And He paid for that for you. And I'd never had anybody read my mail like that, one. Two, I'd never had anybody articulate that that's what that was. I didn't even know that. And then the second big thing that happened with Shane is one day we were on the phone. It was before work, and I was about to go in the Starbucks drive through and I heard this music playing in the background, and I was like, what are you listening to? And he was like, I can't tell you. And I was like, Why? He said, well, if I tell you, it'll change your life. And I was like, shut up and just tell me what it is. And it happened to be the House Fires 2 album that had Good Good Father on it. Pat Barrett wrote that. And he was listening to – it's not even a song. Pat has recently told me, like, Laura, that's not even a song. It's just like a transition. Or I don't know what it is. But the Wick that's on that album, there's another song called This Love. And I downloaded that album, and I literally just started listening to it on repeat. And so – One more thing happened that just changed the trajectory of my life. So I start listening to this album on repeat. Again, God just, like, chasing me down. And I'd always had a really interesting relationship with music. Definitely God was speaking to me with that. But I had recently given in to the pressure of, like, because so many people were asking me where I went to church. I was like, maybe I should go to church. Like, maybe I could get more business if I go to church. <laughs> because that really wasn't where I was in my brain. And so Clay and I started going to Church of the Highlands. And I watched Clay get saved and then baptized. And I was like, okay, what are we doing? And that's kind of the spin out of my salvation story. Like, I always, people are like, tell me your salvation story. I'm like, man, I am in it. I am in salvation every day and looking for sanctification over and over again, right? So, but that leads me to, I start this magazine and I'm pretty pumped. And now I've got this new leash on life. I'm like on fire for Jesus. I joined or started my first small group, which obviously you should do if you've never read the Bible before, you should get right in, just start a small group. I did that. I forced everyone who was on my staff to be in it that would come and we start having these little Bible studies. I think we were reading a a Shana Nyquist. I I messed up that name for sure. But it was a great book. We're reading this book and I'm like undone by this book. I'm again. And I had this because of my relationship with shame, which I was working my way through. I was trying to figure out my own way. I had kind of an affinity for anyone who is wearing as much shame as I once had on. I was really drawn to those people. And so I met two people through Good Grit that I just, everybody was like, what are you doing? Do not invest in that person. Run away. You are a media outlet. And I was like, whatever. You don't rule my life. I'll do what I want. So one was someone who had been to jail, was a felon, um, and she had made some bad choices, admittedly. When I interviewed her, she said, I didn't realize what kind of company this was. You cannot hire me. I understand. And I was like, okay, so can you start next week or what What are you thinking? And she was like, what? And I was like, well, I mean, you have all the qualifications. Like, I see that you serve time for a year. You've done your time. You're in therapy every week, right? And she was like, yes. And I was like, you lost your children. That's terrible. You're trying to work toward getting time with them again. And I was like, look, you know what? I got a lot of stuff in my closet that I don't want anybody big pick. You know, and you. this is very public. People know that this happened. And, like, everybody deserves a second chance. Like, I would love to invest in you. I think you could do a good job. And she was, like, bawled her eyes out. It was her birthday, I think. And she started, and she was awesome. And, like, I was like, this is the best hire I've ever made in my whole life. She is incredible. She's killing it. She's just all the things that really kind of I was missing. And she was acting as my assistant at the time, and she was just killing it. And then the second person that I invested in was a guy named Chris who had pastored a church locally and made some pretty bad decisions and lost the church, lost his marriage, and was bartending and working part-time somewhere else. And he just had, like, the greatest personality that I'd ever met and just— really talented with people, good with communication. And um, again, I was just drawn to people that I felt like I totally got it. I got where they were and I understood how hard and dark that can be to be in it alone. And I was like, hey, you're hired. He was like, I think I could really sell for good grade. I was like, great, let's do this. So I have these two men, two, two people. And I only told two people on my leadership team about specifically the girl that was working for me or woman that was working for me, and just to make sure they weren't going to be uncomfortable. She was not going to be working from the office. She'd be working from home. She would only come in for meetings. That was a proof or parole officer. All of those things were good, and they were both, like, totally good. And at the time, one of those people was a woman who worked for me in a high capacity but an outsourced role. And eventually our paths diverged. My path went one way, and her path was going in a different way. I really wanted to pursue I wanted Faith to be a little bit more open and in the book, or Good Grit. It's I call it a book. It's a magazine. Sorry, and um, and and she just she was a brilliant content producer, but it just we weren't in line. She wasn't Southern. It didn't really work for our brand, and so I was like, "This isn't working." I let her go the best way I knew how. I pr- I could have done so much better. Trust me, I could have done better, and she got really really angry. And a week, that same week, I went on a walk with Chris, the pastor, the, who used to be a pastor and now works for me. And we would have these walks and they were so like, I would be on fire for Jesus. And I felt like I was allowed to talk about that with him. But he was also in this really dark place where he's just like, I'm not even sure where I am with my faith because I've just messed it up so bad and all these things. And, and he looked at me and he said, listen, I'm really excited for you. But I think it's important that you understand that you're in the infancy stage as a Christian. And I just don't want you to be rocked because something is going to come along that's going to really challenge you. And it's going to make you question. And I just want you to remember this. But it was at the time I was like, how dare you? I get it. You're walking through your stuff, okay? You don't get to – don't rain on my parade while I'm over here like – Loving Jesus with all my heart and like, you know, floating down the streets of Birmingham, Alabama. And I'm going to read a scripture because I just. So first Colossians 10, 11 through 17 say actually 12 through 14 specifically say this is the message version. Don't be so naive and self-confident. You're not exempt. You could fall flat on your faces, your face as easily as anyone else. Forget about self-confidence. It's useless. Cultivate God confidence. No test or temptation that comes your way is beyond the course of what others have had to face. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He'll never let you be pushed past your limits. He'll always be here to help you come through it. So my dear friends, when you see people reducing God to something they can use or control, get out of their company as fast as you can. And I guess... In a way, I kind of thought that's what Chris was doing. Of course, I didn't know scripture back then, let's be real. I was reading every book that was on the Christian bookshelves, so but I didn't know any scripture. I was like, oh my God, I love God, so i good. Um, now I'm like, I don't know what I would do without it. But that day I went to a lunch, and after I'd been so mad at Chris, and I was like, I'm so mad at you, I can't even believe you would say that, how dare you? And I get a text message from a friend that said, AL.com had just released a story saying that I was harboring a sex fugitive at my office and I was like what what does that mean I don't know what what does this mean and um by the way this is the first time I'm ever telling this story publicly so I'm a little bit like oh but I'm good I'm through it now so we're good and I remember getting the article and it said that it had reached out to me to try and get a quote but they hadn't and It went on and on about how Good Grit was harboring a sex fugitive and whatever. And I'm going to give you guys a backstory because around this time I had found out that this woman that had worked for me for a little under a year at this time, by the way, went on to work for me for four more years, um, had been arrested from her home where she was working that morning because the police, someone – I don't know who, I have to assume I do know who, but I don't know who, had called the mayor's office and and then we had done decent, decent business with the city and um, they had invested a lot in us and let us do some parties and to raise money and things like that, Um, called the mayor's office and then also called the police and said that I was harboring the sex fugitive. Which is not true, by the way. She was completely done her time and was on parole whatever. But they came to my office when I wasn't there. And because I had not shared that story with everyone on staff, when the police showed up, they said, does this person work here? And all they knew to say was, yeah, she's the assistant to our owner. And they left my office, drove to her house, and arrested her. So I got news. She was arrested. And I read this article that was – so outlandish so ridiculous so I couldn't even believe it and we spent two days trying to get her out of jail it's like a twenty thousand dollar bond or something ridiculous I can't we had no money we're a startup but my brother worked for me at the time and I was like we have to figure this out like we'll just do whatever so we started the first day trying to get her out and it took us two days finally get her out of jail and, and I text her and was like hey we need to meet let's meet at Urban Standard and she was like We don't need to meet. I know. I'm fired. And I was like, you are not fired. We have to meet. We have a lot of work to do. I called a press conference. Uh, I had her call every TV station that would show up, and AL.com. And I held a a conference at our office, and I said, Good Grit loves people scandalously like Jesus did. And if you have a problem with that, then we just probably aren't a good brand for you to associate with. And I'm telling this story now because – I just think it's so interesting how the enemy loves to use things to suppress us. And we have a choice. When we know better, we can do better. For all those years I lived in shame, I just didn't know better until I met my husband and he started telling me about this God he had this relationship with, this good God, this God of grace, this God of hope, this God who literally you can stand beneath the cross and the water will wash you from his side like that kind of God and so every time I met someone who I saw had a lot of shame was riddled with shame the way I was I wanted to just dig in and invest in them and I wanted them to have their own shame not to be confused with shame (laughs) Um, and I those two people are just two glimpses into what that looked like for me and every time I invest in someone, I'm also investing in me. It's really just still a mirror because what I've learned about shame is it isn't this thing that all of a sudden I got this great relationship with Jesus and yes, he totally washes me clean, but we're such habitual people that we have a really bad habit of picking up things that we put down at the foot of the cross, picking them back up and carrying them for a little bit. And then someone has to come along and remind you again, like, hey, man, that that's just too heavy for you. You do not have to carry that. So I spent a long time, and I'm, I'm still in the middle of it. I always say, like, you know, it's funny, I we're never really through these things. Like, it's why we call it the work in therapy. Like, you just, the work is never done. You're never really through a deeper relationship with Jesus. Like, To be completely done and free of shame means I'm in heaven. (laughs) And as much as I would love for that to be, I also really am loving living out my purpose here, which I believe is investing in others. And when I see on them what I know I have lived through, I think it's our job and our calling to stop and invest in those people and not turn away. That I do think that some people are just born with a, a little bit more of a positive outlook in life. And I see that even in my own children. Like you you can see one is different than the other and one has strengths or, you know, they're not weaknesses. They're just differences. Um, But I love in Ephesians 1, 17 says, But I do more than think. I ask God, our master, Jesus Christ, the God of glory, to make you intelligent and discerning in knowing him personally, your eyes focused and clear so that you can see exactly what he is calling you to do, to grasp the immensity of this glorious way of life he has for Christians. And I think that's also the message version, by the way. I just love it because it's easier for me to read. I think that that is my perspective, and I still I hope I have a whole lot more life to live, and I hope I have a lot more opportunities to invest in others the way that others have invested in me. Before it was even about Jesus, it was always about Jesus. and. I think that my ignorance and lack of knowing didn't mean God wasn't with me in my story. And I have been through some hellacious bloodbaths of asking God where he was, you know, out of, after coming out of my infancy, which was, man, talk about, that was a baptism by fire. That guy was like, yeah, listen, it's not going to be like this forever. And literally that day, I was like, wow, really? Thank you for calling that in. I appreciate that but that baptism by fire of really having to grow up fast and understanding i needed i needed better tools it wasn't just i can go get every devotion from the christian bookstore and read one tiny scripture at a time like i really needed to understand and and have a lot more tools in my tool belt because i wasn't dealing with i'm not i'm not 8 years old getting saved you know i'm 31 and now i have all this baggage of living without god but God was always with me in my story. That's the bloodbath. The bloodbath is going back into battle and then being like, hey, so where were you in the middle of all that? And understanding he was with me the whole time. But I think praising God and understanding that there's a higher calling on, on our lives when we are in the knowing. And there's also a higher calling and continuing to go deeper in that knowing. And I'm grateful that God still presents me with opportunities to have people be surrounded by people who will remind me who I am in God when I forget, when I've picked something up that I was supposed to lay at the foot of the cross and versus when I'm able to find someone else who I see is just riddled in shame, specifically shame. I feel like we most easily identify with the things we have suffered most with. I find that mirroring is so interesting. I've learned now 37 and it's taken me until this year to realize that people that upset me or trigger me or trigger me is such a 2019, 2020 word, isn't it? I'm like, I'm being triggered right now. Mm. But anytime that happens, it's it's what I see in my, it's myself I see in them that is pulling up something weird. It's normally not them. It's me that I see. So that is my story, my story of shame, my story of being in the messy middle of which I am still very much in, um, and my story of not letting the thing that consumed you keep you from reaching down when people are in a valley and pulling them out or sitting down there with them. I think once I met Jesus and started working through shame, that meant a, a couple different things for me. One, I had a ton of trauma, and I think that you know, if you have the resources to hire someone to help you work through trauma, it's really important. I had a therapist that wasn't a believer. And then when I became a believer, I found a therapist that was a believer so that he could talk to me about my faith. And that was really important because when I was working through shame, it was a ton of activities that centered around as an adult going back and rescuing that little girl and parenting her the way that I now know that I need that she needed to be parented because I do know better and I have done a ton of work. So shame was therapy with someone that can be trusted that believes what you believe that that I think is really important. Um, another one was really being armed with the word like that is I I have to say that my relationship with God now. And really just over the last two and a half years, and, you know, we're talking about a seven-year span here, you know, a six-year really span, which is insane to think, learning to read the Bible and read the whole story. You know, I think sometimes we just get really good at picking a, a verse that feels good or matches, you know, the season we're in, and we're like, yes, just choose more joy. And it's like, well, but also... Choosing joy normally means you're in a valley, a dark, deep, nasty place of your journey. And choosing joy in that means you can only get that from God. God is light. So anything that anything good, anything good is from God. And the only way you know that is by arming yourself with the word and really staying in it. And I think that so therapy, the word of God. Man, I got to tell you, this is a this is a hard one to say out loud, but this is a real one. Being a shame – I'm like in shame recovery. That's We're going to call it a thing. I feel like it is a thing. It should be a thing. It's not a thing. Brene Brown has definitely got a group for that, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but being a shame – in shame recovery, a lot of that has been apologizing. You know, and I, I say that meaning even the subtle act of – we were on the way home from um, – we we went to my best friend's church in Atlanta, and we were on the way home, just Clay and I, who's my 17-year-old. And this was probably a year and a half ago, maybe even two. We were just talking, and I asked him. I was like, hey, are there, are there things that I did when I was really unhealthy that hurt you and wounded you? Can you tell me about them? And I wasn't really prepared. He is a very articulate kid, but oh, my God. He laid out some things that made – there was just not a place – low enough to go in the car I needed to be under the car in order to just hear them but I pulled over on the side of the road and I was like hey I am really sorry that she messed that up so bad and she was doing the best she could even though she really sucked and he looked at me and he said yeah I have a really hard time with that and I thought my god is he about to like kill me even more for this I'm sorry and he said and I was like what do you mean and he said I loved her too and I was like, "Are you the greatest son in America in the world?" But kids are so resilient, and so I think a part of if you're walking through, if you're really riddled in shame, a release can be something you think that is so unforgivable that that someone in your life couldn't get past or couldn't couldn't overcome. If you just have a candid conversation with them. A lot of times, if they're really close and they're in your circle and they're seeing you do work, because he went on to say, Mom, sometimes I don't even know who you are now. And he's like, and I mean that in the best way. And he was just like, you know, so I loved her and I love you. They're both good. They were both good. They both had really good things. And so I think trusting the people around you with the information so that they can help you release it and good healthy people that are seated at your table will help you with that that doesn't mean that you're not accountable for those things it just means that i think if you have good healthy people in your life and they're sitting with you in the right capacity then they're going to they're going to let you off the head because the scripture that says those are she's so grateful because she was forgiven so much Like, that is definitely a scripture that I resonate with deeply. It's easy to forgive when you've been redeemed.
0: One of the really cool things that we see, really just through storytellers and through storytelling, through being vulnerable, is that when you know someone's path, when you see where they've come from, you have such a different Mm -hmm. picture of who they are today. Mm -hmm. You know, Laura started this magazine called Good Grit. And you see where that came from. You see Mm -hmm. her childhood. You see everything that she struggled through and overcame with Jesus. And then today, she is able to share that in a different format, you know, and just... And it happens with so many of our storytellers, you know, that you're able to see what they've overcome to who they are today. And I think Laura is the perfect example of
1: that. And we've talked before about the healing that comes from telling your story. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. we're we're speaking against the enemy and we're speaking to what God has done. You know, meeting Laura, she's such an accomplished woman. And just to hear the background of her story Mm -hmm. just makes me stand in awe of her Mm -hmm. a little bit more. Um, What I really just admired about her, and I don't know if she even recognized it when she was telling her story, but how she was attracted to people who she wanted to give grace to Mm -hmm. and to tell them to lay their shame down. And I just thought it was so interesting as she was talking, was it was she had such a hard time accepting God's grace. Mm -hmm. But yet she had such an easy time giving that grace to other people. And um and I don't know, it was a reminder to me too of just the importance of really positioning myself to accept God's grace. You know, I mean, it's so easy to walk in regret of your past Mm -hmm. and the things that you did in your twenties or, or, you know, I mean, I think we all have a few of those (laughs) Um, things that you did that you're like, why did I do that? But Mm -hmm. I mean, the amazing thing is God, his word tells us he works all things for good. Those, those past mistakes, those regrets that you had are part of his story as well. I mean, she even says that at the end of her story, she says, um, before it was even about Jesus, it was always about Jesus, right? Each one of our stories is always about Jesus, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done. And don't let Satan allow you to live in this emotion of shame and let it, you know, stagnate mm-hmm. your walk. Don't let Satan convince you that you're not worth a new pair Absolutely. of shoes. Absolutely. Know, right. The Lord wants to give you a new pair of shoes. That. that was such mm-hmm. a, a perfect part of her story and that she said, he kept pursuing me. Mm-hmm. He was leaving mm-hmm. the 99 to pursue me. Mm-hmm. And guess what? It doesn't matter what your shoes look like. <laughs> he wants to pursue you. Yeah. He yeah. wants to leave the 99 and yeah. he will, and he will come after you. Yeah. There, there was honestly so much meat in her story as far as just scripture and um and and God's truth. So we did make this a discovery guide over uh-huh. on um, Patreon. That talks about just how important it is for us to look up scripture that reminds us that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sins, and He longs for us to live in freedom. Mm-hmm.
0: And you know, even as we're having this discussion, I mean, I'm just thinking of the small things. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of times we think of shame as the big things, yeah. and that, and that is often the case. But sometimes it's even a dumb thing that we said to somebody. Yeah. That we may replay in and our mind. And we beat ourselves up go, about it. Yep. I cannot believe I said that. You yeah. know, like it can be the smallest mm-hmm. things that we allow ourselves to just go off the rails mm-hmm. over. And so for me this morning, that's just the perfect reminder mm-hmm. that, that Jesus is here for all of it. Mm-hmm. And we don't even have, we don't have to carry the big and we don't have to carry the small. Yes. So we hope you've enjoyed today's story. Thank you for listening. We thank you always when you share this story with your friends, when you pass them along, either text or on social media, however you like to share podcasts, we are so appreciative and have a great week. You can find us on storytellers lab podcast on all the social media places. If you want to join our email list, we just send one email a week that tells you about our podcast. And mm-hmm. that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and that's you can sign up at org. Have a great week. And if you want the discovery guide that Katie talked about, then you can go to our Patreon Storytellers Live community, which again, you can find on our website at StorytellersLive.org. Just click join our Storytellers Live community, or you can go straight to Patreon. We have the link in the show notes. Have a great week.